Hello and welcome to another episode of the Eat Game Podcast. Good to have your company again. I'm Tom Evans. Uh, This is the show that supports the game meat industry and explores how really versatile game meat is and how ethically produced it really can be. Today, we have Stephen Ellis on the show. Now, Stephen's journey has seen him work alongside some of the country's best-loved chefs in some of the country's leading restaurants, such as Jamie Oliver's 15 and the three Michelin star restaurant Gordon Ramsay in London. Stephen then runs the Bailiwick Freehouse alongside his wife, Amy, who is head pastry chef. And it is a beautiful place, just a stone's throw from the Great Windsor Park. Hi, Stephen. Hi, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for your time. So where do we find you right now? Are you in the kitchen? Are you uh, lounging out at the, at the bar? I'm just sat in the, in the outside, but in the dining room at the moment. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have your time. Um, tell us a little bit about the Bailiwick. So first of all, how long have you have you been there? How long has it been up and running? So the Bailiwick's just been open for just over a year. We, um, we took it on um, during lockdown, actually. We had a pub before, sadly, um, due to uh, COVID and... Uh, other reasons we had to close that, but we were quite lucky that um, this little pub on the gates of the Windsor Great Park came up, and uh, yeah, me and my wife decided to take that on board, um, and we started renovating it during the the second near the end of the second lockdown. So uh, yeah, um, it was kind of a family affair. So uh, Amy's father came out of retirement actually. Um, he was a builder, and my brother, who was an electrician, and other family friend, friends kind of came together because obviously. As we all know during lockdown it was quite difficult to get people and they all kind of helped us and uh yeah it was quite um they helped us refurb the place and we uh opened when the government allowed us to. yeah gosh what a story uh what a couple of years you, you must have had it, it is such a beautiful spot so you say you're near the, the great gates of windsor park so to just describe it a little bit I, I mean you really are on the fringes aren't you of the of the, of the parkland oh You've yeah got no literally access. You, walk, you can walk out of the um you walk out the pub and <laughs> probably what one meter and then that's uh it's, it's obviously it's not the main entrance but it's of one of the gates to um the windsor great park wow. and which borders virginia water lake probably one of the quieter gates is probably where more of the locals go to rather than the majority of the tourists but uh, which we kind of like that it's like a little cul-de-sac on the corner and people who do know where we are kind of come and then it's quite nice because then people discover us on their walks and then uh we kind of like to try and build on regular customers coming back and they and, and try and make their experience yeah a lovely one really well, you mentioned locals there. I mean, you could class Her Majesty the Queen as a, as a local. You often read that the, <laughs> that the royals are out riding and walking, don't you, in Great Windsor Park? Have, have you ha- had any VIPs pop in for a bite by any chance? Um, not on the royal status, no. We have quite. We've had a few people. Angelica Bell, um, she comes quite a few times. Oh yeah, great. Um, we were quite lucky. Our last pub, which is just down the road, ironically, um, Elton John, uh, who lives in the area, he uh, ventured upon us and. Let's hopefully see if you'll uh, come to our new uh, pub, which is, as I said, just five minutes up the road sure. from the last one. So we'll see. Fantastic. So uh, let's just go back to the beginning a bit here, Stephen. You, you're originally from Lancashire, I believe, but you spent uh, most of your childhood growing up in the Middle East. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. So what, what what took you out there? Why were your parents out there? Was that sort of work-related? No, my, my, my father's job, really. Um, I, I didn't really, I said I didn't really grow up in the UK. Um, I was born here, but um, I spent probably like, two years here then my dad's job um he worked in it that took him abroad um back in the 90s when that was kind of a quite a big uh big thing back then and so he kind of moved out there and i moved between saudi arabia kuwait um and bahrain and and obviously during like the gulf wars and so we had to come back but yeah majority of my childhood up to the age of 16 i spent in the middle east traveling between different countries just purely on my my dad's job really yeah 
Amazing. So where was where were you in the world when you had that kind of, I mean, light bulb moment, if you will, where you thought, right, this is what I want to do. This is the industry I want to work in. Um, I think I'd be good at that. <laughs> where along the way were you? Well, f- funny enough, funny enough, it, it, quite funny. I, had, um, I originally wanted to kind of, as a young kid, I wanted to be an ice hockey player, which is quite ironic when you live in the desert. People don't think that's the kind <laughs> yeah. of place that you'd want to do stuff like ice hockey. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, my dad's because he worked alongside the military. He wasn't in the military, but he worked alongside them. I was quite lucky to get access to like the American army bases where they had ice rings and things like that. So that's kind of where that love fell for. But my mum is into catering herself. So she does more, which she did, do more commercial-based catering. So in factories and things like that. She'd always cooked all her life. And so that, I, I've always had that as like, that was always like a kind of a, a second love. I used to always, I was always the one in the kitchen. Um, I've got a brother, but he was more into um, equestrian and stuff like that. So my, I was always the one in the kitchen helping my mum when she was doing all the cooking. It was always been there. Yeah. But I, um, I think when the kind of crunch came, when my parents were kind of like, you know, what, what do you really want to do? You know, if, if you will also support you, if you want to kind of take this journey into ice hockey, if that's what you really want to do, then, you know, we'll support you. And obviously we'd have to kind of look at, places in America or Canada that specialize in that. But wow. to be honest, it's that kind of thought, you know, when you realize, you know, do, are you really going to be that, at that level that yeah. these people have been doing it since they were, you know, since they could walk. Um, and, and the reality was, you know, no, not really. And, and my kind of second love was, you know, cooking. So yeah, I kind of took that up and my, we, well, I moved back. My parents stayed in, uh, in the Middle East and um, I went to, I enrolled in Birmingham College of Food and that's where I kind of started my professional give you my uh, kind of professional career and and went from there, really. Well, we're glad you, you took that route and not the ice hockey route. <laughs> um, we really are. Otherwise, we wouldn't be speaking to you today, no doubt. But you you have this... Uh, this wonderful ability, Stephen, to put a twist on, on on these familiar dishes that we know so well, but with a sophisticated touch. So how would you describe your style? I mean, it's very much British influence. Yeah, Brit- British influences with... Uh, I, I like to kind of tell people it's like pub classics, British influences, but with uh, a twist. Obviously, the twist for me is very much trying to use game. Um, and and I, I think it's such a an underused produce, an underused meat. I, mm. I, I think, you know, a lot of people are scared of it. I think a lot of people are, are, are worried about, you know, how, they don't know how to cook it. Is it going to be really difficult? Is it something? And it, it really isn't. I, I just think a lot of people need, uh, you know, need more education in this area, um, especially now in this day and age. And, you know, when we hear on the news about the, um, you know, the, the, the herds of deer that are growing continuously up and down the country because there's, they haven't got predators. And obviously people, we haven't got an, enough people um, culling them or um, and hunting them. So it's, you know, they haven't got, you know, that we eliminated lynx and wolves and stuff like that. So they haven't got a predator anymore. So they're just growing. And obviously what people don't realize is, you know, they are actually damaging the environment. Yeah. You know, they, and, and, and I think, you know, it's really interesting. We listen to farmers and, and, and gamekeepers alike and, and they talk about how, obviously I'm just picking on deer at the moment, but you know how it actually, we should be culling more. People should be eating more of this. And especially now in this day and age when veganism is a large thing and people are a lot more aware of what they're eating and what they want to put in their mouth and things like that. And the people are very aware of battery farming and stuff like that. Um, and it's yeah. good that people are, uh, it is highlighted now and people shouldn't be eating that kind of thing. But that's where I thought, you know, people would actually start eating more game. You could bore people on the amount of health factors that. Well, are really exactly. Well, this is the, this is the message we're trying to sort of educate people on the nutritional health benefits of of deer it's alone. Insane. It's, it's, it's you know insane. what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it, yeah. it, you can it, you can cook venison the same way you cook beef or pork or anything like that. 
you know, yes, you have maybe have to give it a look. And that's why I say with everyone a little bit with all game, like you can cook it the same way, you know, as I, I, I try and tell people that, you know, a roast pheasant is just as good as a roast chicken. Yeah. yeah it's a lot more leaner. Um, healthy wise, it's a lot more healthier. It hasn't got the same fat as the other animals do have, but then you have to improvise that by adding other items to it to, to give it the same benefit. But if it's cooked with love and, and given enough care and attention, you can have it just as good, if not better than your standard beef, chicken or pork. Well, this is it. I mean, I always find that there's this stereotypical sort of point of view. A lot of friends of mine that don't eat much game will say, oh, game meat, it's, it's always so dry. Uh, dry you know, which dry. puts people I dry off. and I also get strong. Str- yeah. I was too strong. It, yeah. it, it, I wouldn't like it. But to kind of get into the story, I mean, I kind of fell in love with game when I, I went. So after working with um, Jamie Oliver, I moved to restaurant called Ramsey, as you said quite rightly. Um, but in between that, I took a year out and... Um, and I went to work for, well, two years, really. I went to go work for Andrew Pern at the Star Inn in North Harem. Okay. Um, and that's why I kind of really fell in love with game because they used to get um, all the hunting pies, used to shoot on the moors and bring all the game in. And then they, we would obviously prep them whole and break them down. And, and that's where I really fell in love with uh, with that, uh, well, them, with the game birds and, and the venison and everything he was bringing in because I just thought, you know, you don't get the, a lot of this in London. Yeah, you get your, your, your venison, you get the odd ones, but you don't get all of this stuff, you know, snipe, woodcock it's, it's very rare and it offers you so much versatility when trying to create something new doesn't it as, i guess as a chef in a kitchen you, you can just yeah, do exactly. so much with it well then and this thing and then also i moved to you know went back to london finished my um training there at gordon ramsay's under claire smith and then um i um i moved to windsor um and met the gamekeeper a gentleman called peter clayton who's the head gamekeeper of windsor great park and to be honest this this gentleman is you know his, his knowledge is unbelievable mm. um it's if anyone had time to listen to him it, I, I literally could spend you know have a pint and with him and literally listen to him all evening it's, it's really interesting the stuff that he kind of comes out with um and i remember the one story that i always tell people is when i first came here from london he was like oh you know let me like please come and try some of my red deer and i was a little bit like oh um it's not really my thing and he was like can i ask why and i was like well every time i've had red deer in london it's very tough and he got quite annoyed and he was like, this is the problem. He's yeah. like, because the, the, some of the, not like all of them, but some suppliers who will supply to London, for example, um, they'll just get like a really big deer stag and think, oh, that's perfect. It looks massive. Let's, let's sell it to them. And actually uh, there's, there's no thought process to it. And, and he, as he, as he would rightly say to me, he said that that's just as good for stewing, if not dog food, you know right. what I mean? And they don't, and there's no, and he said it comes from all sides. It's not just from the cooking ability, it's from the suppliers and from the, the people who, um, the gamekeepers and that, you know, understanding what actually is the best meat to use. With him, obviously he looks after the deers on the Great Park, um, as well as uh, hunting the game birds and everything else. And um, he, the one thing he does is, you know, he will go out and he, <laughs> I kind of call him like a deer whisperer because he, <laughs> his knowledge is insane and he kind of knows them all by his own name he gives them and it's crazy because wow. they kind of know him. Um, he's out every morning at 4 a.m. But no, he, he was telling me that the way he looks at it is he will cull the, some of these deers at like two and a half years and the meat is, is so tender, you know, it, it's just as good as any prime beef or anything, like, if not better. It's, it's super tender and, and minimal cooking is required to show off this amazing produce. Yeah. And, and the way I say to him, I was like, oh, you know, is that a little bit too young? And he's like, well, this is the way it works, you know, especially in the deer world. He's like, either I cull it and the meat is in pristine condition and you guys get that and you can serve it to guests and, and educate people how great deer is or it gets to rut season and the dominant stag will just kill them right because that's just nature and that's what happens and he said um and and, and Mason, i can't do anything with them he said because 
they'll obviously be damaged uh, and injured by these deers and we just have to shoot them and get rid of them because actually they're all damaged and, and then bruised and you can't use the meat. Yeah, can't get that like, into the food chain. Yeah, he said, so actually I'm doing it a favour so I can kind of, he kind of tells which weaker deers are not going to make that rut season and he will call them and, and, and you would get like a prime red deer. And I tried this and I was blown away by it and I was like, I couldn't believe you know, how good Red Deer actually was, yeah. if, if actually maintained and, and done properly by so, you know what I mean? Not just by cooking it well, it's just also by the way it's reared and looked after and and, and, and called and, and everything else. So can you um, tap into this relationship with Peter at the Great Windsor Park, at, at the Bailiwick? Can you, I mean, is he your, your game supplier? Yes, so he supplies us. Well, that's as fresh as it gets, isn't it? Being so close to the park. I mean, that's amazing. It is phenomenal. And then he will, and some of the stuff he'll bring me uh, is amazing. I think things, you know, Things like golden plovers. Um, these are a very rare bird. Kind of its flight path comes from France. It comes over the Windsor Great Park. And normally they go to the Queen, but every so often she doesn't want them. And we're quite lucky he brings them over. And wow. they're fascinating. People don't hear about these, you know. Um, and then you've got teal, snipe, lo- loads of different birds. Um, I-, I could kind of yeah, go on forever. Well, you've it's got the Queen's hand me downs here, but that's, that's absolutely <laughs> fine. That's not a bad thing to have. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, how does it work? Do you call Peter uh, at the Great Park and with the quarry that you would like that week, or is it the other way around? Does he call you other and say, Look, This is what he, I've got? He, he'll call me and let yeah. me know what he's kind of shot. So, okay. to, uh, he was in this morning, to be honest. Uh, right. We dropped off two roe deers and um, 20 pigeons. And some rabbits. So, it, and, and this is another thing as well. That I kind of go on to where I tell people that people have this weird fascination that game season only runs in the winter. Well, yeah. That's not true. Again, it's another thing that you need to educate on. The game is actually available all year round. It just depends what game you use. Just like anything else, really, it's kind of like vegetables, I suppose. You know. So at the moment, roe deer and um, the roe deer is in, in kind of in season. Rabbits, pigeon are in season. Um, then we have like monk jack, um, red deer normally runs from October through to February. Um, yes, you get majority of your game birds in between October, well, August onwards. Um, however, um, there is still actually a variety of different game that is still available all year round. It's just a case of, of being able to tap into it and, and, and use it. And, and, and also it's in an abundance. It's not like, we're, you know, there's only a few around. This is, this is again, the thing. I think people need to be educated on it, that actually you can eat deer, uh, eat a game, not just deer, sorry, game all year yeah, round. Yeah. It just depends what is available. But as, as a chef, do you find that the way the season flows offers a good variety of game meat? Or, oh, you know, 100%. in early summer, are you sort of hanging on for the grouse and the, fre- the pheasant to come back round again? No, no, no. So at the moment, you know, we've got like, uh, we have rabbit on, so I've stuffed the saddle with uh, like Mediterranean Provencal-style vegetables, um, sun-dried tomatoes, olives, basil, because they're kind of in summer season, you know, we'll serve that with um, some really nice purple sprout and broccoli and asparagus and things. Um, yeah. Also, the pigeon, you know, let's stuff that and do like a, like a pigeon wellington because um, people like wellington's a big thing. People enjoy it around here. So we'll do like a pigeon wellington. The roe deer, the moment we'll, we do a kind of a nose to tail of it. So we'll uh, braise the shoulders and make like a shoe farsi, like stuffed in cabbage. We'll um, use the haunch and turn it into pastrami. So we'll cure it. Um, the loin will char grill and then with the offal will turn into like um, little faggots. So we kind of use everything really. That's what I'm a real big fan of that. I've, I've always, always had a, a big fan of using the whole animal. Yeah, a really important thing. Absolutely. Using that whole carcass. And, and, and exactly. And I think even just for chefs, I found it quite interesting. The amount of chefs who are phenomenal what they do, but a lot of them don't know where the actual cuts come from. You know, they just, they'll pick up the phone and order it from their supplier. And I understand in certain circumstances, you know, you haven't got the space all the time to be able to prep the whole animals, but... 
I do think it is kind of for a chef, it's fundamental. They should know where the cuts are. They should know how to prep that cut themselves. And I think, again, it's just trying to bring back the old school kind of training. Um, And that's something I really kind of do here with our chefs. And and we get them all in whole and prep them down. And um, obviously, we don't pluck them or skin them. They're done on on site in the the gamekeeper's larder. But it all comes in whole from there. We prep the rest ourselves and just, you know, always thinking of new dishes of how we can use the whole animal, really. And how important is it to you to respect the produce that you're using? Um, and, and how difficult is that to sort of show through onto the plate? For me, it's very important to um, respect the produce we're using. I mean, again, even little things like telling people what deer they're having is to me is important or what yeah. animal they're having. Some people just call it venison. I mean, to me, I'm like, you know, I don't... It's just like fishing, you know. People, nowadays, people like to tell you what daybo it came from, which I think is so important. For here, we'll tell them it's a roe deer or it's a monk jack or it's a... A red deer. Sometimes he might go up to Norfolk and bring back a Chinese water deer for me uh, when he's at the estates there, because he travels between the estates. So if, I'm quite lucky that he goes up um, for when the grouse season is to Balmoral and brings down some uh, grouse, which is phenomenal. And um, yeah, it, it, it kind of brings from different things. So it's um, yeah, it's really important for us to kind of teach and educate the, our guests in what we do. Um, it's part of the I experience, think, I guess, when they come yeah. and eat with you, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing. And and we will, you know, going back to when you were saying about a style, it's kind of what we do is take classic pub and English dishes, sometimes French as well, and we just use replace the normal standard meat with 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 game. So, for example, we did like a instead of doing like a chicken chasseur, we used to do, we did a pheasant one, um, and and so like hunter style uh, chicken is what it is based. Yeah. But we use pheasant instead, or like I said, you know, for Wellingtons, we'll either use you know, red deer or pigeon or anything, really. Um, we, we just, you will, you will just try and swap out your usual day-to-day meat and, and replace it with, with uh, game, which obviously at the, off the offset, people are a little bit cautious about. But actually, what we found is a lot of people, you know, love it, you know. Yeah. So at the moment on a lunch menu, we do a more relaxed lunch menu. We do like a, a stag burger. And actually, the amount of people who love it over a beef burger is, is yeah, it's really imagine. nice to know that. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's a really nice feeling when you know that people actually love it and they come back for that. And we do a little bar snack called uh, venison bonbons. So we basically braise down the um, the shoulders and then we uh, add chicken stock and veal stock to it and um, and bind it with some uh, and vinegar. And then we make these into little um, like 10 gram balls and then we panny them in breadcrumbs and deep fry them and serve them with a mustard mayonnaise and oh. what was just an idea to use up we had an abundance of shoulders has now become kind of one of the center points of yeah. the pub and we kind of brought it from our last pub because people just come in and ask to take it away and it's great <laughs> and actually people like we can't find this anywhere and you sh- and we sell it by the abundance of it and it's just really nice to know and I think the gamekeeper told me the other day, you know, he said apart from the actual royal estates he said uh, you're the biggest buyer of game from us so it's and it's great because we just, oh, that's all we try and do, you know. Obviously, yes, we have our and other options on the menu for people who are who want to take that. Um, you're a little bit cautious at the time, but normally what we find is they return, they always come back and then challenge themselves and sure. try the, sure. the deer or the, the pigeon or the rabbit or, well, you know. Well, they'll do what we all do, which is look around the other tables and see what's being delivered. And they'll be like, oh, my God, that looks amazing. So that's what I always do, you know, if I'm not sure. Yeah. Oh, I used to anyway. Sort of uh, be rather conservative with my choices and then get very jealous of uh, all the food around me. That's <laughs> no, the problem. Um, the one thing that you are famous for at the Bailiwick as well, uh, we must mention this, is the most fantastic desserts. And this is where your, your lovely wife, Amy, comes in. She's head pastry chef there. So where did you actually uh, meet Amy? Where did your paths cross if i can take you back that far uh i met amy working at the star inn um i had moved up there yeah we kind of um clicked and and then yeah i returned back to um i returned back to london and uh and she came and went to work at um 
2850 in London. Yeah. And then from there, she went to work at the library. Then she moved over to restaurant Gordon Ramsay. And, and then by the time I was just starting out at the Oxford Blue, uh, our other pub before, uh, and then she moved over from there and, uh, kind of, yeah, everything else was just, uh, amazing. Was the really? Well, I mean, yeah, ironically, uh, she sat next to me. So, she, hello, um, Amy. Hello. Hi, lovely to speak to you. I'm, I'm, I'm waxing lyrical about your fantastic desserts. Um, just <laughs> tell me what, if I was to come to eat with you guys tonight, give me just a little, I mean, what, what, what would be your biggest seller? I think definitely the lemon parfait, which is currently on the menu, uh, is the biggest seller. I always do a parfait in some kind of shape or form, normally in the shape of a fruit. We've done strawberry, pear, orange, clementine. And lemon is the current version, and it is definitely the most popular. It's yeah. kind of a take on a lemon meringue pie. So um, I do Italian burnt meringue and make the lemon jelly out of the lemon skins. Um, and then the parfait, obviously, I make out of the lemon juice. So. And where do your creations come from? Like sort of novelists will tell you, a storyline will come to them, or a songwriter will tell you in the middle of the night, something will, will sort of spring into mind. How does it work for you? <laughs> Um, I think the first thing that um, really springs to mind is um, the flavour. Definitely seasonality kind of helps as well. So um, the, the the first thing that started for me is what's coming into season, what tastes amazing right now. And then I kind of go from there. It always starts with flavour um, and what makes sense and what's going to be super tasty. And then I kind of think if I'm thinking, let's just say about strawberries, I then think what application would work best for strawberries. So yeah. um so once I've got an idea like that, I go down that path and then then the dessert comes afterwards. Okay. You know, quite a, um, quite artistic and I, I kind of think about how it would, once I've thought of flavour, the next comes with how I want it to look and then I kind of create the components that I want to make it look a certain way, sure. if that makes sense. Yeah, oh, well, they're cre they are amazing creations. There's no two ways about that. And, and how in sync do you need to be with the main menu? Is Do you need to pay much attention to that at all with when you're creating a, a, men, a dessert menu or can um, that be completely separate is there any synergy with that there's definitely some synergy i mean um because steve and i run the bailiwick together obviously i'm i i am in the pastry the majority of the time but staff at the moment kind of pushes me into the kitchen to help yeah. um so i i kind of see it in a way that i haven't seen it before especially working together at other places so I think it definitely helps. I mean, because he uses quite heavy, dominant, powerful, rich flavours, I always tend to make sure desserts aren't too filling, that they're light, that they're something that people can have even if they're feeling a bit full because everyone has space for dessert, separate stomach and all that. So, sure. um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I just try and make them so that it complements the meal and doesn't make it, like, doesn't push you over the edge. I try and not make them... I, w I would say not necessarily what you would expect. I try and make them relatable, but also just something a bit different that you would would not normally get. Sure, which is so rare to find, and it's it's such a talent you have. Um, well, it, you. what a, what a bonus to, to speak to you, Amy. Um, it, it's lovely to chat to you. And, and Stephen, I, I guess you get to try all these out, do you, before they get wheeled out the front of house, and <laughs> yeah. uh, you get you get the good job of being the guinea pig. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Well, we well, we, in all fairness, we do try everything together. Yeah. Um, if I'm trying new dishes, starters, mains, um, I'll always get Amy's opinion first before anyone else's. You know, true. Sometimes the truth hurts. Uh, yeah. He's actually quite straightforward with with you know how things go. Yeah. And and yeah, and vice versa. You know, I'll always shake the desserts with Amy, and we'll try them together. Um, and then 
obviously then educate the team on them and then move them to the menu from there. But they, it, it, yeah, kind of, we do, it's a bit of trial and error first. Um, we'll run a dish for a few weeks before we actually seize the menu and things like that. Okay. But obviously, like I said, with game, because it's in season, everything's always changing. So it helps with the menus to change seasonally as well. Well, between you both as a team, you've, you've got so much experience. You've worked with so many uh, wonderful uh, people in the industry. Um, no doubt this will be a huge success. Um, Stephen, let me just ask you, who do you idolise in your world, in your profession? Who have you always looked up to? Or is that too difficult a question to ask? I don't know. When I was, when I was growing, when I was kind of working through the ranks, um, I always kind of idolised uh, Marco Pierre White. Um, Gordon was obviously someone I idolised at entries and I went there and, and then... Uh, worked under Claire Smith, which again, if I could do it all again, I would. Um, she taught me a lot, and and the, and the kind of the base and the grounds. But I, I think there'd be a number of people. You know, I said Andrew Pern kind of opened my eyes to to game and 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 all that kind of style, and and that was kind of the first pub I worked in as well. So that was where I kind of felt my love for pubs kind of really came. Yeah. You know, as a young kid, I was always going to pubs, but actually see a Michelin style pub. I kind of back then I was always about you know Michelin star restaurants and. I was quite curious about what what makes a mission star pub and kind of show, seeing that they could do really classic dishes and turn them into something quite amazing um, in 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 the little place like a pub. It, it was something that really yeah took to me. So yeah. I think n- numerous people along the way really. Um, Alanda Cass was a big uh, person as well. And yeah, I, I don't think I really have a chef that I just idolise really now. And so your goals and ambitions, Stephen, how does that work for you? So where does the fulfilment come in your in your line of work? Do you feel every project you, you have has to trump the one before? I mean, if you asked me this three or four years ago, I'd tell you that my kind of goals were to get a Michelin star and, and achieve, you know, uh, where I wanted to go. But as I've kind of grown up, to be honest, you know, and especially in this day and age and, and with what things are going on around the world, you know, just to, just to have a full pub uh, yeah. and and to see people leave to see people leave happy is 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 kind of what we both kind of work for now you know that that's kind of where we're at you know trying to educate people showing them something different um to have returning guests yeah. to have a team that like working for us and who enjoy their work and yeah i think it's definitely where we're kind of going to having a successful business well i think what you've both shown is that you can find some of the best food in the entire country in a pub. It does not have to be one of these swanky restaurants in the middle of Mayfair. Um, no, I think that's exactly. quite clear from what you guys have created. It's wonderful. Um, listen, what we love to do on this podcast is finish our Chef Mini Series the same way with a quick fire round of questions designed to cut straight to the truth of your likes and dislikes. So, um, Amy, if you're involved in this, even better. Uh, <laughs> quick fire answers from both of you. Let's get underway with this one. Stephen first, gravy or jus? Jus. Amy? Great, me. I'm northern. <laughs> Pie or casserole? Pie. Pie. Pigeon or pheasant? Pheasant. Pigeon. Leg or breast? Leg. Breast. <laughs> carrots cut in batons or carrots cut in rings? Uh, rings. Yeah, I'd say rings. <laughs> chips or roasties? Oh, chips. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, okay, you've got, uh, you have to choose one of these to cook with for the rest of your life. Butter or olive oil? Butter. Butter. All oh, right, that's <laughs> straight down the line. <laughs> Chocolate dessert or cheese board? Chocolate. Cocktail or a pint? Cocktail. Pint. Eat in or eat out? Ooh, we do enjoy eating out, though, don't we? I mean, if we could afford to eat out all the time, we definitely eat out. Eat out, eat out. <laughs> and my final question for both of you, you've been wonderful. Uh, what's the one piece of kitchen equipment that you could just not live without? 
Spoon. Very versatile. <laughs> well, a stove. And to be honest, can we be able to cook on anything? Uh, that makes complete sense. Uh, Stephen and Amy, thank you so much for coming on the Eat Game podcast. Just uh, tell everyone again where to go online to find uh, where the Bailiwick is. Bailiwick Freehouse. And that, yeah, www.bailiwickfreehouse.co.uk. And you'll uh, you'll find us on there. Um, and we'd love to see people if they come visit the Windsor Great Park. We're just in a little corner by Virginia War. And we'd love to see people if they come visit us. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, guys. Thank, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Cheers. Next week then on the podcast, after a decade at the helm of Michelin-starred London restaurant Kitchen W8, I speak to chef Mark Kempson. We love game meat. It's very nutritional, it's healthy, it's lean, it's environmentally friendly with its low-carbon footprint. And uh, ethically, it's great as well. You know, animals have great lives. They're wild, they roam free. So it's a win-win for us. So more from Mark next Monday. Uh, make sure you subscribe, share, rate and review the podcast if you can. It all helps spread the word. And if you'd like more information on Eat Game, check us out at our website, eatgame.co.uk. This has been a Media Cage production. We'll see you next time.